Good morning, Castleton Church family. It's been another hard week in our community, both locally and around the country. So much chaos, so much confusion. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for the clarity that God's word brings to our hearts and even to our actions as we live in this world filled with troubles. As we turn our attention to God's word, would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we come now to your word asking you to do something that we so desperately need. Would you allow us to push away all the thoughts of the busyness and all the big problems in our lives and in our community? Would you, would you help us to have an encounter with your presence through you speaking to us? Would you give us eyes of faith to see the glory in your face, Lord Jesus? Would you still our hearts? Would you grant us the grace to live faithfully as your servants gathered together to worship you this morning? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Undoubtedly, one of the biggest days of the year for any college town is move-in day. My wife, Precious, was an uh, employee in student housing of a large uh, dormitory called Jennings Hall. They would prepare for weeks leading up to move-in day, that day where their building went from empty to full with 450 students all at once. There was lots of furniture that was moved in. There were certainly lots of bodies moving back and forth. And at the end of the day, Everyone was in their place to live. The building was occupied after being so silent and empty over the summer. Now, that was a, a lot of movement, a lot of uh, hubbub as people uh, went to, uh, moved on to campus to begin a semester. And our text this morning shows us just as much excitement, and even more so, as a moving day of sorts begins. Solomon has been preparing a house, a house for his God. And it, all the way back from the chapter, beginning of chapter 5 through chapter 7, we have seen as Solomon has been preparing to build this house. And finally, the day is here. God is going to move into his temple. And as he does, we will learn something of how important God's presence is for worship of God. This morning, we're going to begin the, uh, a small sub-series in the book of 1 Kings. For the next five weeks, we're going to turn our attention to this uh, topic of worship. As Solomon dedicates the temple he built to the God of the Israelites. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on those first 11 verses as the ark is brought into the temple. And more importantly, God moves into the house that Solomon built. And as we do, we will learn the lesson that worship begins with God making his presence known. That worship begins with God making his presence known. The narrative in front of us is not very difficult to understand. It's got two main sections to it. It's, it's really one narrative structure. Verses one through nine shows us the lead up as the ark is brought into the temple. You might say the ark arrives in verses one through nine. And then in verses 10 through 11, the second movement, we see more importantly, 
the Lord arrives as God moves in to the house Solomon built. Let's turn our attention first to verses 1 through 9. The ark arrives. As I just mentioned, Solomon has been working on preparing this house for the Lord. It has required all of his wisdom and wealth to build a house fitting for a God as glorious and beautiful as the God of the Israelites. Solomon went about collecting materials fitting for a house of such grandeur. He got lavish lumber from Lebanon. He brought heaps of glittering gold to line the inside of it. He even got bronze in such bountiful quantities that they stopped counting it. All this careful crafting was because the God that would inhabit this place one day is a God of peace, a God of beauty, a God of holiness. And so Solomon has undertaken this huge building project all for the purpose of making a house fitting for this God to dwell. The last verse in chapter 7 told us that Solomon had begun moving in some of the stuff as the temple was completed. In 751, we saw that he took the treasures that had been stored up as uh, the, the uh, storehouse, the treasury for the, uh, the temple and moved it in. But now in verses 1 through 3, we fast forward a little bit. Eleven months go by as Solomon prepares for this big dedication ceremony, a party to celebrate God's move-in day. Eleven months is a long time to wait. You, know, you could see that temple being built. And yet for an assembly like the one Solomon had in mind, that much time is, was certainly needed. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon. Whenever a young couple in all their joy announces to people, we are engaged, we're going to be married soon. Almost immediately, the question pops up. Well, that's wonderful. When is the wedding? Everyone wants to know when the big day is coming. And sometimes the engagements are long, sometimes they're short. There's wisdom to both. In this case, 11 months is what it took from the time Solomon completed the temple to the perfect moment for the assembly that Solomon knew would be fitting for God's move in day. And in verses 1 through 3, we see it is a comprehensive assembly. It includes the highest tiers of uh, Israelite society as well all the way down to the common man. We see that the elders of Israel are there, the heads of the tribes. Those would be people that were influential, people of political capital in the day. They're also the fathers of houses. But you can also see later on that it also includes all the men of Israel. And later it says the whole congregation, that's women and children included. Solomon thinks this is such a big deal that he throws a party, a worship service in which everyone is invited to. Well, why is, the, why is this such a, a big deal for everyone to be here? Well, the occasion that Solomon picked was a time of national gathering already. Uh, the timing of this, if you look at the month in which he threw this assembly, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles. That was one of the uh, rhythms in the Israelite calendar that reminded them of their season of wandering in the wilderness, living in tents under the protection and care of their God. 
And as we're going to see, that's an especially fitting time for God to move into his house. Because as it stands, God is still living in a tent. See, to understand the magnitude of this moment, we have to understand something of the ark's history. God gave instructions for the Ark of the Covenant to be built back in Exodus 25. They were very detailed instructions. The Ark was about the size of a coffee table, just about four feet wide, uh, four feet long, two feet wide, two feet tall. It had four poles coming out of it of this wooden box so it could be carried without touching the box itself. The whole thing was covered with gold. It had Uh, statues of golden angels facing each other on the top. And in the middle of those angels was a slab of gold called the mercy seat. The ark was the focal point of God's presence among his people. It's spoken of as God sitting on top of those angels, on top of the ark, like a throne. So you can think of it like a king's throne in the midst of his kingdom. The ark, for all its majesty, was hidden behind the walls and curtains of a structure called the tabernacle. It was a a movable tent that went along with the Israelites through the wilderness. It hid the presence of God from them in this movable spiritual RV of the ancient world. Now, you also need to realize the journey the ark had been on. It went around with the Israelites through that wilderness wandering all the years they were without a home. Then during the conquest, you started to see the ark appear, even during battles. Uh, At important moments as they were entering the promised land, the priests would carry the ark out in front of the people of Israel and the army when they crossed the Jordan River. You remember the, the priests brought the ark into the water. They would take it in front of them into battle to show that the Lord was the one that was fighting the battle for them. And then once the kingdom was established, well, the ark came to some middle ground rest, not permanent rest. It was put in places like Shiloh, uh, other spots, even the uh, personal property of some wealthy people. For, For a time, the ark would settle, but always in a temporary way. The the RV was just parked. It was never a a final resting place for the ark. The last place it ended up was actually in Jerusalem. David brought it in. You may remember that story. They put it on the ox cart, and uh, as they did so, Uzzah went and tried to keep it from tipping over and was struck dead. Finally, years later, it was brought into the part of Jerusalem that David built, And now Solomon is going to bring it the rest of the way into the expanded Jerusalem that he has built. He's going to bring it to the Temple Mount all the way to the top of the hill to the place where God's presence will be found. That final leg that the ark needs to make on his journey, it's going to be a notable one because it's going to be a bloody road to the temple You see that in verse 5, described here how the ark makes its way to the temple. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before them were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. 
It's a bloody ordeal. Step by step, oxen and sheep and goats were being sacrificed in worship of God. Why, why do this? Why go through all this trouble? Why, why shed so much blood? Well, remember, the ark was at the center of the sacrificial system that God had given his people. A reminder that for God's presence to be experienced by his people, that sin must be dealt with. That sins must be atoned for by the shedding of blood. The most prominent day where that happened was the day of atonement where the high priest would go into the tabernacle, into the innermost chamber, to the Holy of Holies, and bring with him the blood of the sacrifices to sprinkle on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. Even as the ark makes its final leg of the journey here, there is this reminder of the need for sacrifice for the sins of God's people to be wiped away. Finally, we see the ark come to rest. Verses 6 through 8, the priests, they bring it into the temple, into the innermost chamber, that special holy of holies with the gigantic cherubim dominating the back wall. They bring it to rest in its place where God will make his presence known. God's throne has been installed. Now the big question comes, will he sit on it? Will God keep his promise to live amongst his people, to dwell in the house that Solomon made for him? Well, that's what we see in verses 10 through 11, the climax of the story. As the ark arrived in 1 through 9, now we see the Lord arrives in 10 through 11. Let's read those verses together. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's presence is made known through what is called the cloud of glory. Sometimes it's called the Shekinah glory. Back in Exodus, God made his presence known to the Israelites through a pillar of cloud when they were running away from Pharaoh. It it was God's way of showing his presence among his people and and the way he was guiding them. Then when the tabernacle was dedicated also, God showed his presence by filling the tabernacle with this same cloud of glory. Now, Now this cloud of glory fills Solomon's house for the Lord. The temple that he built is being inhabited by Israel's God. Now, I, I love the, the way that the priests, they, they bug out. You can think of it a little bit like one of those bug bombs you set off. You, they set down the ark, and as they're exiting the temple, this cloud fills every nook and cranny. And we're, we're told that it was so thick, God's glory was so intense that they couldn't even minister inside while it was there. This cloud of glory shows us two aspects of God. It shows us his presence. There was no doubt this was where God dwelled when that cloud was present. It also showed us his mystery. The cloud both conceals and reveals, as uh, theologian Dale Ralph Davis says it. It both shields the Israelites from God's presence as well as assures them that his presence is among them. 
The bottom line is that as the cloud fills the temple, there is no doubt Solomon's building project has been a success. God has accepted the house built for him and is seated on his throne in the midst of his people exactly the way he promised. Now, there's some big questions here though. What should modern day Christians take from Solomon's success in building a house for God and having God's presence inhabit that house? What does God's moving day mean for us as Christians living living thousands of years later? Well, there are three applications that we as a church should draw from this, all related to our worship. Three things that God's presence in his house in Solomon's day teaches us about our worship as followers of King Jesus. First, we should be a people that are committed to God-centered worship should be a people that are committed to God-centered worship. Consider what a disappointment it would have been as Solomon's big bash had gone off without a hitch up until the very end. If all the sacrifices had been made, all the assembly had been there, all the pomp, all the circumstance, and yet at the end of it, there was no cloud, no presence of God. This whole exercise would have been pointless Because it turns out that worship is impossible without God's presence. God initiates worship. We are a people that respond to God making himself known to allowing us to experience something of his presence. Without the presence of God, worship is impossible. Now that means that if God is the uh, focal point of worship, then we need to be careful to keep God at the center of our worship. Now, you may not be aware of this, but it is very easy to have man-centered worship even in places called churches. We focus on good things, even natural things. We think about our own comfort We think about the things burdening our heart and try to bring therapy to those problems. We think of all the social issues around us and try to work towards solutions. In all those things, there's a common thread. None of them are bad, but none of them are God. Worship that doesn't put God at the center is a contradiction of terms. Worship is only possible when God is present among his people at the center of their worship. Now, as a church, we try to implement this in our corporate gatherings like this one. One way is by intentionally putting our focus on God from the very beginning. Uh, Have you caught how our services always begin with something that's more than a welcome? We, We welcome you, yes, but we welcome you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's not just religious jargon. That's us trying to remind you why we're gathered and ultimately who you are here to meet. When we gather for worship, we are here together to put our attention on God. Realize in your own heart how easy it is to put the center of your heart on something else. Maybe you have the thought, I wish we sang that song I heard on the radio this week. Or maybe it's 
bugging you really badly, that you feel like someone in your small group might be ignoring you. You just can't think about anything else. Or maybe it's thoughts about our country and the direction it's going, or a politician who said something you really don't like, or something you really like. And if you don't fight against those tendencies, somehow or the other, even in a gathering of people for worship, your focus is not even on God. Remember, Worship is impossible without the presence of God. But when our hearts, our minds, our whole beings are focused on him, brothers and sisters, what a joyful thing it is to gather together to worship him. What would it do to our worship if we thought of every gathering as an opportunity for God's people to come together and enjoy the presence of God in worship. My prayer is with the Lord's help that our gatherings would be God-centered. But that leaves a practical question. How do you keep God at the center of your worship gathering? What do you do to ensure your worship gatherings are not focused on your own thoughts, your own ideas, or everything happening in the world, but instead on the God who made us and revealed himself to us? Well, that brings us to the second application. We need to be a people that are committed to word-centered worship. Word-centered worship. There's a very small detail in verse 9 with a huge significance. We're told as the ark is brought into the most holy place, the, the author of 1 Kings lets us remember one little detail. Oh, by the way, inside the ark are the stone tablets, what we often call the Ten Commandments are written on. God's word to his people, his 10 words to his people are at the physical center of this worship assembly we see here in 1 Kings 8, 1 through 11. And that's no accident because God speaking to his people is what guides God's people in worship. Consider how God brought the Israelites to the Mount Sinai and spoke to them to initiate their relationship and ultimately to initiate their worship of him. We too need to pay close attention to God's word. And indeed, we need to structure our very worship around God's word if we are to experience the fullness of God's presence. One way we do that as Christians is by our attention to the Bible. That's not making an idol out of a book No, that is taking seriously the fact that our God is a speaking God. He has revealed himself through communication, through words. And if God speaks, I don't know about you, but I want to listen. And God's word tells us. It tells us about him. It tells us how to worship him and how to respond to him. As a church, we are committed to God's word being at the center of our worship. You can see that, how it teases out in our singing, and in our sermons. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much about the singing aspect of this because next week, Luke Jones is going to preach a sermon on our singing together. And I don't want to steal his thunder. So I will, if you're interested in how we are word centered our singing, make sure you are here next week and be ready to be edified by Luke Jones's preaching. But I do want to spend some time on our sermons Our endeavor is to make our worship saturated with the Bible. 
Uh, I once had someone tell me that they don't appreciate our way, the way we do worship services because in their own words, we spend too much time and attention on the Bible. Now, when they told me that, I have to confess, I was actually uh, quite, quite proud uh, because as far as I understand it, Paying attention to God's word above other things, even good other things, that is the very thing that we must fight for in our hearts and certainly in our church. When it comes to sermons, we are committed to something called expositional preaching. That means sermons like this one are not intended to be my particular thoughts any random thing that popped into my head in a given week. Instead, our sermons are meant to expose what's in God's word itself. If I'm doing my job as a preacher, I am telling you the same thing the Bible is telling you out of any given passage. That's why we work our way uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Yes, even books like 1 Kings. Because if God said it, then we need to listen to it. And if we're to worship to him, we need to let his word drive our agenda and not let our own thoughts or the direction of our society uh, dictate it. Now, even as I say that, though, there is a danger when it comes to sermons that I think we need to be wary of. It's very possible for us to be unnecessarily picky about our preaching preferences. You know what I'm talking about. We like the particular delivery style of one preacher over another. We, li we like the attention to detail some preachers have. We, we might even find ourselves grumbling a little bit when we see a preacher we don't particularly like so much coming up to preach. Brothers and sisters, if we are centered on God's word in our worship, that means that we should pay less attention to the polish of our preachers and more attention to the wonders of God's word. If someone comes up and faithfully preaches the Bible to you, shows you Jesus, exhorts you in your faith, then we should praise God for it. We should endeavor to be easily edified by their preaching. I love the fact that our church has men that are capable of filling in the pulpit when I'm on vacation or for other reasons. I'm very thankful for that. And I hope you are too. But realize that there is a battlefield that goes on in our own hearts when it comes to our preferences, even on things like preaching. So let me encourage you, this Sunday afternoon and every Sunday to follow, try to spend less time thinking about how smooth the delivery of the sermon was and spend more time marveling at the amazing word of God spoken to us as his people. I hope each of us would be moved to say, can you believe what God said to us this week? He is an amazing God. His word is better than anything else in this life. There's a third, a third application that we can draw from this text. And it, this one highlights most directly the difference between the, Solomon and the assembled, assembly of Israel in his day and us as New Testament Christians gathered to worship. And that is, we need to be committed to Christ-centered worship, to Christ-centered worship. We have a benefit that Solomon and the Israelites in that day did not have. 
we have much greater clarity of the God we worship. We have much more instruction of what he is like and how we are to respond to him because we live on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider that idea of sacrifice that leads to presence. The ark had to go down a long, hard, bloody road to get to the temple. And that prepares us for that long, bloody road that Jesus woke or walked to Calvary. It prepares us for the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. It prepares us for the one that would come to bring forgiveness to God's people, not by a repeated yearly sacrifice, but by one perfect sacrifice for all time. It teaches us that not only will God dwell with his people, but that we can be ushered into his presence, welcome to gaze upon his glory, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. I love 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It shows us as Christians the glory that we get to see and where we see it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you get to gaze on the glory of God every time you come to worship and you put your eyes of faith on Jesus Christ. Solomon had nothing close to the glory, to the vision of God's glory and majesty that we do with the clarity of the cross. We also have a more powerful experience of God's presence than they did in that day. We should not long to be with Solomon and the assembly as the cloud filled that house because God has come to a habit somewhere far closer to us, our very hearts. Jesus said just as much in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with them. Brothers and sisters, do you see what this means? Our hearts as the people of God are filled with the very presence of God the moment we believe in Christ Jesus, which means we experience the presence of God in a more powerful way than even they did on that festive day. God is with us. He is living with us forever. And isn't that a reason to worship him? Now, maybe you're listening this morning and you're not a Christian. I wonder if you've reckoned with this question. How can I be in the presence of the God that made me? I hope you've thought about it. You were made for it. Your heart will never be fully satisfied until you are in his presence. And yet there is a big problem in your life as there is in all of our lives. The, the problem of sin. Learn the lesson from all those sacrifices of animals that were killed you need someone to deal with your sin problem. And that someone is named Jesus Christ. He gave his life as a substitute for sinners like you and me. God punished Jesus in our place on the cross so that there would be no more punishment left if we would trust him and ask him to forgive us. That means you can be forgiven today. You can no longer fear God. 
you can know you're welcome in his presence. If you come to know God through Jesus Christ, if, if you don't know what that means, find a Christian friend and ask them, how can I know Jesus Christ myself? All of us, for all of us who are Christians this morning, I hope our worship of Jesus is full of joy because of the glory of his presence that is among us. One way Jesus meant for us to remember his presence among us and what he did for us is through our observance of communion. He gave this as a rhythm for believers to remind us of his sacrifice, of his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And as we take it together, we were reminded that God made good on his promise for his people to be in his presence forever. It's a meal for God's gathered people to remember our worship through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, worship is impossible without God's presence. But when God makes himself known through Jesus Christ, how can you do anything but worship? My hope, my prayer, is that would be true of us this morning. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for the way that you have ushered us into the very presence of God. That we can see the glory of God. Even as you live in our hearts. Even as we gather together and know you are in the midst of us as your people. Would you allow us to be free from the shackles of all the things that would turn our attention to anywhere else? Jesus, if there's anyone that has come in this morning burdened, that can't seem to free their hearts from the cares of this world and the many discouragements that there are for us to endure, would you grant them, even right now, a sense of your presence and a renewed joy in their worship? Oh, Jesus, as we take communion, would you remind us Remind us of what was required for us to have this joyful meeting with you. Fill our hearts with thankfulness, we pray in your name. Amen.